Welcome to episode 6 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. Today we have a recording of a presentation by Monica Tomlinson, who is currently completing her PhD in clinical psychology at Western University. The title of her presentation is Where Eastern Tradition Meets Western Science, Mindfulness and Its Application in Psychotherapy. In this talk, she will offer an overview of mindfulness introduce us to mindfulness meditation, and briefly describe how she has applied mindfulness to non-clinical groups and clinical groups. Let us know what you think about this presentation at www.humanistagenda.com. Enjoy! Thank you, Dr. Rod Martin, for giving me such a great uh, introduction. So I don't really have to go through a whole a whole bunch of my background. Um, I will say, in terms of my experience with mindfulness since I started at University of Western Ontario, I've done quite a few different kinds of mindfulness groups. I've incorporated mindfulness into individual therapy, into couples therapy, into family therapy, into play therapy with young kids. Uh, I also just this summer ran a mindfulness group for patients with chronic pain at St. Joseph's Hospital. So at the very end, I'll talk about how we apply mindfulness to different populations, both clinical populations and non-clinical populations. So for example, I also ran a parenting group, a mindful parenting group at the university for students who are parents. I ran a mindful meditation group to help teach forensic psychiatric patients some mindfulness skills. So forensic psychiatric patients are individuals who have committed serious crimes and been found not criminally responsible due to a, a severe mental disorder. So that's down in St. Thomas. And I also have run mindful movement groups that bring mindfulness skills into yoga and stretching. Lots of different kinds of populations, lots of different settings all one thing. So what is that thing? Well, it's mindfulness. And I've taken a lot of my talk out of three books that I hold very near and dear. Um, two are by John Kabat-Zinn. One is Full Catastrophe Living, which talks a lot about how to implement mindfulness in your life and goes actually quite in depth about mindfulness skills. Another one is Wherever You Go, There You Are, another John Kabat-Zinn. I don't know if anybody has read this one, but that incorporates a lot of mindfulness, talks about some of the research behind mindfulness. And then Stephen Hayes wrote a book called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, and it brings a lot of mindfulness skills as well. So while I'm not going to list really any research studies or talk necessarily about specific research projects, the, all of the things that I will talk about are evidence-based strategies that we've brought into psychotherapy that we've adopted from Eastern traditions. I'm kind of curious, when I say the word, word mindfulness, what comes up for you? You yell out kind of what you think is associated with mindfulness, what images are conjured by the word mindfulness. Yes, sir? Snoring. Snoring? Okay. <laughs> Falling asleep? You think of yeah. mindful meditations and then you just slowly get more and more relaxed? <laughs> Okay, you've had experience. I think probably everyone who's done a mindfulness meditation has fallen asleep once or twice. It's possible. Any other thoughts about mindfulness? Yes. Awareness. Awareness. Very good. Yes. Being in the moment. In the moment, in the present moment. Yes. Paying attention. Paying attention. Excellent. So 
I feel that some of you have already kind of explored mindfulness a little bit because usually when I talk to undergrads, they say things like hippies and finger symbols and people who wear a lot of linen, and they kind of come up with that idea for mindfulness. A lot of sitting on mountains and contemplating the meaning of life, and that's not entirely untrue, but it's largely untrue. So absolutely, some of those definitions are completely correct. Mindfulness is a state of mind. It's a way of approaching awareness. It involves paying attention to what's going on in the moment. It's purposeful and it's non-judgmental. And we'll go through the seven principles of mindfulness. Really, the non-judgmental and purposeful kind of quality of it is what makes it a little bit different from other forms of meditation. It's also very much focused on the present moment, whereas some forms of meditation are focused on almost taking you elsewhere. When we're thinking of developing a mindfulness practice, I think the reason that it is so challenging is because it's very much out of sync with how our minds are wired. We're wired usually to be on autopilot, or to have a less mindful or mindless kind of approach to awareness. So mindlessness or autopilot really involves usually being in your head. Maybe you're in the past. Maybe you're in the future. Maybe you're in your grocery list. Maybe you're ruminating about something that happened at work today. But it's really about being disconnected from what is happening right here, right now, in the present moment. And if you think about evolutionarily why that might be the case that our minds are wired that way. Well, if we have saber-toothed tigers around, and you know we live to eleven and die of a toothache, it's probably a really good idea for us to ruminate about what happened in the past and learn from it, and always be thinking about the future so we can plan and keep ourselves alive and keep ourselves healthy. In this day and age, we don't have the same immediate threats. So the mindful approach tends to be a much more helpful approach to awareness. Given the different kinds of things we're facing and the different types of suffering that have kind of gotten brought in in the last couple hundred years, I have to give due credit to Buddhism. We are stealing a lot of traditions that came straight out of Buddhist tradition.、Um, oftentimes, when people think about mindfulness, they think about meditation. And I will mention that these are different things. While mindfulness is a state of awareness or an approach to awareness, mindfulness meditation is the practice that we engage in to cultivate that ability. So, when people talk about mindfulness meditation, oftentimes you're in a seated position. You're maybe focusing on your breath, focusing on the sounds around you, smells, temperature. Thoughts going through your mind, emotions coming up, sensations on your skin—that is a practice、um, to cultivate the ability to be mindful. But mindfulness is something that you can bring into your awareness at any point during the day. Something that sometimes confuses people that I like to clarify right off the bat is mindfulness is not concerned with emptying your mind. Sometimes people come to therapy and they think, "All right, so all I need to do is get rid of all the thoughts that I don't like, get rid of all the emotions I don't like, and then things will be fine." Well, that's maybe helpful at times, but I've never been able to turn off my mind, and I don't know of anybody living who's been able to completely turn off their minds. So we're really not trying to achieve a state of not having any thoughts or of clearing our mind. 
more we're trying to put a space between those thoughts and our own awareness of them. So rather than being tangled up in them or getting carried away by them, we can observe them and then make some decisions about what we'd like to do with what happens to be going on in our minds. The kinds of things that we're paying attention to in mindfulness, of course we're paying attention to the information in our environment, smells, touches, situations, people, all of the incoming data. We're also really paying attention to what's going on inside us. This helps us better understand how data in the environment might be influencing our thoughts, our emotions, our sensations, so that we can start to understand some of the patterns that exist in ourselves in terms of us responding or reacting to the environment. And that state of awareness also brings about more choice to maybe intervene or influence patterns that are not particularly helpful to us. This is a quote by Viktor Frankl that I love, and I think it, I'm not sure if he intended this to be the case, but I think it really clearly emphasizes what the purpose of mindfulness is, why we would try to enter this state of awareness. It's a little bit wacky, so I'm going to read it to you. What we're trying to do with mindfulness is realize that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And if we can cultivate an awareness of that space, if we can be able to access that space between stimulus and response, we have the ability to choose our response. And in that choice kind of lies our growth and our freedom. So when we enter a practice of mindfulness, we are trying to be aware of that space. And that space tends not to be around all that often. Usually things happen to us and we kind of react, 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 react. And then maybe when things are so blown up or so intense or the suffering is so big, then we start to realize, ah, these were all of the things that I kind of reacted, reacted, reacted to. For example, if I have the thought I am worthless, that feels like such a real thought. It feels like a truth. If I were so connected to that thought that I lived my life as if it were a truth, that might get me into trouble. That might not be completely fair to me. That might bring about a lot of emotion with it. It might change my behavior. If I could go, oh yeah, I'm having the thought again that I'm worthless. Okay, I'm going to go on with my day. That would be such a different relationship. And that's kind of what we're talking about. It's about noticing, ah, I am having the thought that, rather than having thoughts be truths in our lives that we live by. Hopefully you're all still with me. I know usually I have questions throughout, but I know we're saving it to the end, so I'm going to power through. What we're trying to get at with mindfulness is how to exchange our suffering glasses, so our tendency to see life through our thoughts, through our emotions, rather than see life and see our thoughts and see our emotions with choice glasses. So approaching often what ends up being unpleasant stimuli in therapy with more choice rather than just simply reacting to it as it comes up. This is a disclaimer. A lot of people say, oh, okay, it's just about sort of having a positive attitude about life. That could work sometimes, but life actually is really hard. And there are a lot of things that happen in life that are not fun. And there are a lot of unpleasant things that happen in life that we do need to go through in order to develop a meaningful, valuable life. So rather than thinking of this as 
seeing life through rose-colored glasses, which is really not what we're doing. We're seeing life as it actually is, and then deciding what to do with that. Let's dive into the seven pillars of mindfulness. So these are really the principles by which we approach a mindful awareness. They're all really hard. I'm going to give you a little bit of a kind of warning here. Non-judging is the first. So when we approach stimuli in a mindful way, when we enter a mindful awareness, we are observing what happens to be coming up in the present moment from a non-judgmental stance. Again, this is fighting really hard against what our mind naturally does, because our minds are judging minds. We judge everything. As soon as you become a little bit more mindful, uh, it's actually really difficult because you realize how judgmental we actually all are. So, for example, we might say, oh, the weather is bad. Oh, that thing is ugly. Oh, that doesn't taste good. We have value judgments about everything. When we enter a mindful state of awareness, we're trying to simply see things as interesting things coming up. Like, oh, instead of going, oh, my anxiety is back. Going, huh, that's interesting. My stomach is kind of tight. I'm a little bit tingly. My skin is hot. I'm noticing that my mind is saying things like, you can't do this. This is going to go badly. That's such a different way of approaching things than, oh my gosh, my anxiety is back. So that's a much less judgmental way of seeing anxiety than saying, this is what's happening and it's bad and I don't like it. The second principle, also a really difficult one, is patience. Allowing things sometimes to unfold naturally. In a world of Amazon Prime and 15-minute pizza delivery and everything that we could ever want at our doorstep when we want it, I think we've unlearned a little bit of patience. And so trying to bring that back into our lives, sometimes things do need to just run their course. Sometimes really strong emotions like grief take time. Sometimes if we rush things, it actually ends up damaging things or having negative effects. If we were to help this butterfly out of his chrysalis, that would be wrong, right? The butterfly needs to slowly learn how to get out on its own. If we have a toddler that is learning to walk, you know, rather than helping the toddler, you want to gently allow the toddler to learn that for him or herself. Or sometimes we have thoughts that seem like they're never going to go away. But I've never had a thought that never went away. Sometimes it goes away and comes back. But being aware that no thought, no emotion, no feeling, no situation lasts forever. And sometimes we can bring a stance of patience to things that are happening. A third principle of mindfulness is called beginner's mind. This is entertaining the possibility of looking at the world, a situation, a person, an argument, as if for the first time. This is a really interesting thing to do. When I was taking mindfulness courses, we had to go home and look at our dogs or pets as if for the first time. <laughs> and it's such an interesting thing. You start noticing, oh, there are colors, I think, that are different in the fur and so happy all the time. <laughs> and it's amazing to look just truly at these creatures who have mastered mindfulness. <laughs> uh, and sort of seeing things sometimes with fresh eyes, allows us to not necessarily be dragged through by our past, our memories, things that have happened to us before. 
The fourth one is trust. Sometimes we feel like if we're in the present moment, it doesn't allow us to plan and organize and problem solve and do all the things that we need to do or really think about all those situations that really bothered us. So if we're mindful, if we're in the present moment, what if we lose out? Well, it's not that we need to be in the present moment 100% of the time. We do need to plan, we do need to organize. But I think everybody can think of a time where we planned or organized or problem solved things that didn't end up ever happening, problem solved problems that don't exist, thought about things that may or may not come to pass in the future. So if we are in the present moment and we adopt a sense of trust of ourselves, it's actually trusting ourselves to manage things as they come up, as they enter the present moment, rather than feeling like we always need to be in the future or always need to be in the past. For example, now that I'm just about to finish my PhD, every family event has, oh, Monica, what are you going to do next? What are the next five years going to look like? Marriage? Babies? What's happening here? And I always say to them, it's okay. Future Monica has got this. I'm doing what I need to do here. Future Monica can do what she needs to do there. But allowing myself, with all of the knowledge that I have, to trust that I can get through what happens to come up rather than worrying about it. The fifth principle is non-striving. This is a principle that goes along with sometimes accepting that we don't enter the state of relaxation maybe that we want to, that maybe we're not exactly in the place that we want to, maybe we're in a place that we can't quite have any control over. This is especially important during meditation. You can do a 40-minute meditation where everything's going well and you're gently observing your thoughts and you're curiously observing emotions and you're aware of all the stimuli. And then the next day, you can try to do the same meditation and your mind is taking you in a million directions and you're pulling it back and it's taking you away and you're pulling it back and it's taking you away and you're pulling it back. And there's a frustration that comes up with that. I, I thought I had mastered relaxation. So this principle is about ultimately trying to allow the reality that is to be the reality that is without striving to make it something that it's simply not. The sixth principle is acceptance, coming to terms with things as they actually are. This doesn't mean that you're okay with the, thing, with the way things are at all. You don't have to like it at all. It's just more coming to terms with the way things are so that you can stop struggling with the, your resistance kind of to how things are and decide maybe just what to do with the reality that you're faced with. The seventh principle is letting go. Sometimes when we are trying to navigate through thoughts, sometimes when we're trying to suppress emotions or influence thoughts that just keep coming back into our mind, we can practice simply letting go of the struggle. If a thought wants to be there, can't hurt me. It's probably unpleasant from time to time, but letting go of the struggle that we sometimes engage in with our thoughts and feelings. This picture comes from an Indian, like a very ancient Indian story that I love on how to catch a monkey. It talks about how if you want to catch a monkey, you just have to have an open jar and put a banana in it because the monkey will reach in and grab the banana and realize you can't get the banana out, so he just stays there, and then you can catch the monkey. 
And so we talk about well, the monkey could easily drop the banana, <laughs> but sometimes we don't. We hold on to these things that are not necessarily helpful for us to hold on to, and we get caught in that kind of struggle. So there's another Buddhist proverb that I love that says, "Let go or be dragged." And this is kind of tapping into that. Sometimes we have to make the intentional choice to let go of things and practice that. So this is just a summary of the seven pillars, and it's on the handout as well. All right. So we've gone really quickly through the seven pillars. I'm now going to talk a little bit more about approaches to psychotherapy. I know I'm not supposed to ask questions, but if there's a quick question, I'm just wondering if you're all with me so far because I feel like that was a lot of information. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about how we apply mindfulness to different kinds of populations or different kinds of settings. Mindfulness and chronic pain. Chronic pain is something that seems to be a larger and larger issue right now in our medical world, and so a lot of psychologists are being called in to pain management programs. We have a phenomenal pain management program at St. Joe's. Psychologists are being brought in to try to. Disentangle or unlink pain and suffering. These are things that, of course, naturally go together. Pain sucks. We know that pain sucks. It's really not a fun thing to have, especially all the time. That's okay to be upset that you have pain all the time, right? That's a very human way to react to that. But the suffering that the pain causes, or the implications that it has for someone's life, don't necessarily need to be so intense. So we really try to understand the pain, what the pain means to that person, and reduce the suffering, and implement behavioral strategies to keep the pain as low and even as possible. So when people come into this group, let's call them the mindless person. I should I should have said the autopilot person. That's probably a better term. Mindless has all kinds of other connotations. Let's say the autopilot person. Might be unaware of or buying into the thoughts that make pain what we call dirty, that complicate pain, that encourage pain to kind of be the driver of someone's life rather than them be the driver of someone's of their own life with the pain kind of coming along for the ride. So, for example, people come in, they say, "This pain is horrible. I feel so useless. I can't even walk my dog. I can't even pick up my." Grandchildren, I can't do this. I can't do this, and the pain holds this enormous meaning for their sense of identity and sense of value and sense of worth, and that makes sense. You're used to going through life in a certain way, and then something stops you from going through life in the same way. So we really try to help people become mindful of the kinds of thoughts and emotions that are getting entangled with chronic pain. We try so people who are a little bit less mindful might react rather than respond to emotions. Being in pain all the time makes you very understandably pretty irritable.、Uh, emotion comes along with the pain, and if we're reacting, reacting, reacting to those emotions as they come up, they can disrupt a lot of things in someone's life. So teaching people to react rather than respond to the emotions. That make pain dirty. So anger, frustration, a sense of injustice. So the kind of consequence of being less mindful is that a person might become quite irritable with their family, 
They might decide, you know what, screw the pain, I'm going to garden for six hours anyway. So they might push through the task, and which ends up causing massive flare-ups um, of pain. The person might feel worse that they can't move the next day. We have a lot of people who say, I knew that this was going to hurt, but I did it anyway because it's very meaningful to me. So they have pushed through even though they can't do a whole lot the next day or the next couple of days. They might start pushing friends and family away because they can't engage in their life in the same way as they used to. This ends up actually making the pain worse. It also ends up lowering their mood and it tends to spiral between pain getting worse and mood going along with that. So when we're trying to allow them a bit more of a mindful attitude, we kind of help them explore the thoughts and feelings that go along with pain and be a bit more compassionate to themselves. Yeah, pain is awful. You're allowed to feel the injustice. It's so not fair. You can totally feel all of those things. Be aware of how they're influencing how you go about your life. There's a difference. You can validate your own emotions, but also be aware when they're making you irritable with your family, when they're starting to lead to you pushing people away. If they can notice the thoughts and feelings as they occur, and make choices that are in line with their values and be kind to pain. So if a value is um, adventurousness and someone is used to hiking and skydiving, we try to find a way that is kinder to the pain that also fulfills that value. So I worked with someone who was a professional hockey player, had multiple concussions, can't play hockey anymore. If somebody throws him into the boards one more time, he may not live. So we pushed him towards, okay, what are the values associated with hockey? It's exciting, it's adventurous, it's challenging. And he was able to find a whole bunch of other activities that fulfill those values that are also kinder to his pain and some of his physical limitations. He joined Habitat for Humanity and started building houses. And it was quite a different experience for him, but it made him realize that the value system can absolutely stay intact, just be enacted in ways that are kinder to yourself, to your body, to your pain. So the result of a more mindful way of interacting with the world is noticing the sensation of pain and the thoughts and feelings that go along with it, pacing the day so that activities don't cause flare-ups as much, clearly and effectively communicating needs with family and friends, setting boundaries with yourself, with other people, to help keep pain as low and even as possible, which ends up leading to pain disrupting life much less, mood increases, and as mood increases, actually our tolerance for pain increases as well. So this is a very quick, I realize, kind of sample of how we might apply mindfulness skills to something like chronic pain. My mindful parenting group um, was quite different, same principles. So a lot of awareness of the thoughts and emotions that children bring up in us, which is lots of different kinds of emotions. Joy, frustration, worry, all those kinds of things. Being aware that they're coming up. Thoughts, what if this makes me a bad mom? Thoughts like, what if I'm doing this wrong? Thoughts, my other kids seem to be better behaved than my kid. All of those thoughts, being aware and mindful of them. Awareness of how reacting mindfully, mindlessly, or on autopilot to those thoughts and emotions can play out unwanted patterns. And sometimes 
we replay ineffective parenting styles from our own childhood. So being mindful of that as well. Approaching experiences with children using the seven principles of mindfulness, often emphasizing patience, non-striving, and acceptance. And using mindfulness meditation practice as a form of self-care and to build up energy reserves among parents who are often exhausted. Um, so we also, in that group, we only spend about 15 minutes talking about mindfulness skills, and we spend about an hour and 15 minutes practicing. At the Southwest Center in St. Thomas, where I was working with uh, inpatients there, we were working with a lot of people who are struggling with psychosis. So they were experiencing hallucinations, delusions, They were also experiencing what we call negative symptoms, so not expressing a lot of emotion, not having motivation to get up and do things. It led to a lot of inactivity. Um, In terms of the hallucinations and delusions, oh, and also the other symptoms, we tried to make them as aware as possible of the symptoms, noticing that the symptoms are not them. Just like thoughts and feelings are not us, we have them trying to move that towards symptoms. Symptoms, the hallucination is not you. It doesn't define you. You are a separate person. Let's bring out that person and build an awareness that those symptoms come along with that person at that particular moment. Noticing that there is a layer of their experience that represents who they are, a layer of experience that represents the thoughts, feelings, emotions, symptoms, and sensations that go along with that experience, And we took it even further, recognizing that there's a part of us that can be aware of both the self and the thoughts and emotions and symptoms and sensations. So bringing that kind of level of awareness to what's happening with them so that they can make more choices, so that hallucinations aren't as frightening, um, so that they're not as tied to behavior. Also really bringing an enormous amount of the non-judgment piece of mindfulness. People in this particular facility, these are, this is the waiting room. This is our labyrinth that we have at the hospital. It's pretty cool. It's a beautiful hospital. Um, these people have criminal records. They have usually a psychotic spectrum disorder, so schizophrenia, delusional disorder, something like that. They have kind of the double whammy of stigma. They get treated very poorly out in the community. Um, even though their criminal behavior is so closely linked to their mental illness that it actually caused the criminal behavior. So these people really work hard to gain some self-confidence, some feelings of self-efficacy to navigate the world once they leave the hospital, and really work on the non-judgmental piece when they're starting to think about the behaviors that led from their illness, and also thinking about what the illness has done in their lives. So we work really hard on if a thought comes up, we say, hello, thought, I remember you. You are a burst of mental activity. You are not a fact. You are not something that I have to react to. We work really hard on helping them adopt the awareness, but also the practice of seeing the difference between their symptoms and who they are. So why is this helpful? I'm going to kind of wrap things up now. We might even get out just a little bit early because I talk more quickly when I'm up here. Um, One third of Canadians right now will suffer from a mental disorder at some point in their lives. That's a big number of people. 
that's really concerning to the psychological community and to all kinds of other communities. And rates of suicide, depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is rising in Western countries. Whether that is actually increased rates of illness or increased awareness of illness or increased rates of people coming forward, not really sure. But it's something that is in our kind of in our awareness, I suppose, more and more. And when we think about how this can be, we kind of wonder, you know, people have a lot going for them right now. We have typically food, water, shelter, safety, iPhones, GPS, Amazon Prime, Siri, Alexa, credit cards, Facebook, Twitter, cars. We have so much that is supposed to make us well. Why are we suffering so much? And this is something that has kind of plagued, I think, a lot of people for a while. Why in a world that is objectively easier than most generations before it, are we in such an enormous state of suffering? And I think there are a few reasons. One, happiness seems to be the goal. That's problem, because happiness is an emotion, which means by definition, it's temporary. So happiness is also not the natural state of human beings. I've never read a history book and came out with the realization that people have actually been happy for decades and decades, centuries, millennia. We usually come out with the realization that human suffering seems to be pretty common, actually. And that if we're in a state of calm, we tend to move out of that state <laughs> pretty quickly. So when we think about what we actually are looking for in life, it's not happiness. At least that's a very dangerous goal because happiness is temporary. Probably what we're actually looking for is a meaningful, fulfilling, valuable life. And when we get in that direction, we realize that part of that life includes suffering. And that that is something we have to learn how to better manage. Not that we can create a life that doesn't have any suffering, because that's not really possible. It turns out life is hard. So that is something that I think we're trying to bring about in mindfulness, is how do we cultivate meaningful lives? What are our values? What are the things that are important to us? And once we figure that out, we can get a sense of what will move us towards that. And oftentimes, it's the experience of some suffering. I've done a hundred final exams in my life. I don't do it for fun. I do it because that's getting me to where I need to go. But if we can allow ourselves to experience that, the suffering of an exam, get through it, and come out the other end, that's a much more helpful approach, rather than a, trying to keep happiness around. Our society has reoriented our lives to focus, or it's reoriented our focus and our awareness to pick out ways in which we are not happy. And that's very much a capitalistic kind of result. If we can point out all the things that you don't have, all of the things that you don't measure up to your neighbor, all of the things, all the ways that you are different or lesser than friends, family, etc., we can sell you things. It works really well. <laughs> so trying to realize that process, maybe be mindful of that process, understand, oh, I'm having that jealous thought again. Oh, I'm having that feeling a bit worthless thought again. I'm having these uncomfortable emotions of envy. That's interesting. Okay, let me refocus on values, on meaning. 
That's what we're trying to do by cultivating a more mindful in the moment awareness. We ascribe a lot of meanings to our situations based on the assumption that we are supposed to be something. Happy, skinny, healthy, and loving relationships, rich, eating organic, non-GMO foods with our 2.4 kids and our retirement homes in Hawaii. If we think of things like that, we're constantly disappointed. So believing that we can have a meaningful, rich life in whatever state we happen to be in is much more liberating. Also noticing thoughts and feelings rather than simply reacting to them or buying into them mindlessly, again, opens up that space between stimulus and response where we can grow and start making choices. I'm going to enter suffering, an exam, a doctor's appointment, a surgery, whatever it is, because it's important to me, because it will be important for me to develop my meaningful life. Ultimately, the practice of mindfulness allows us an opportunity to become much more in tune with ourselves. Being compassionate that we are humans, it's not, I guess, practical to expect ourselves to be happy. What is much more practical or human is recognizing that we do have an enormous range of emotions and that we're in a constant flux. If you think of the happiest day of your life, it probably didn't take too long before a little bit of frustration, a little bit of disappointment, a little bit of anxiety came into that. So being in tune to those processes happening allows us the opportunity to understand how our environments affect us so that we can open up some space between stimulus and response and make decisions that allow us to build more valuable, meaning-based lives. Um, so I hope that that offers, albeit a very quick overview of mindfulness and maybe some sense of why this is such a big thing right now, why it is now mandatory training in the military, why it's brought into lots of school systems, why we think this will be a helpful way for people in our current kind of climate in Western societies to bring more sort of value and meaning into their lives. I thank you so much for listening to me, and I look forward to questions. I know there's coffee and things like that, so that may be first, and then some questions. But thank you very much. I appreciate all of your time and attention. Thank you.